Amen. Thanks, Eric. Yeah, so we have known the Hovises for, you said five years. I don't know. It might be closer to six. It feels a lot longer than maybe it is, but um, six-ish years. But we're excited for these guys that, that when they planted uh, New City because uh, we were just glad that we didn't have to hear them talking about planting churches anymore. So it was just good to be able to kind of get them down here in Florida. But no, it's been fun to walk alongside these guys. I remember meeting them, uh, you know, five or six years ago. And even from that point, you know, they were talking about this desire to plant a church and wanting to see the glory of God that we just sung about. Go to see that just spread uh, and how God just began to work in their life over those five or six years. And just to see this this morning, just the, the fruit of what God has done in their life is, uh, man, it's really exciting. But it's really exciting for the reason that we as a church at Mercy Hill Church believe and I know you guys here at New City believe, and that is this, that we believe that the local church is God's plan A, and there is no plan B, <laughs> that the local church is God's plan A for reaching not only where we're at right here in Tampa, but for reaching the world, and that's how God has established it. That's what Jesus gave his marching orders to. He gave his marching orders to the local church. He said, go and make disciples, and that's the job of the local church. That's what y'all are doing as New City Church right here in Tampa. But the cool thing is that you guys are doing it right here in Tampa, but you are a part of something that is much bigger. You guys are a part of churches like Mercy Hill Church, like the Summit Church, who sent New City down here and who have this desire to see churches planted all around the country, all over the world. Our desire is to make disciples and to plant churches and to repeat that over and over again until we die. That's our desire. That's what y'all are a part of. You're a part of this bigger network of churches that is fulfilling God's plan to reach the world. But I, hopefully, I, I don't want that in any way to, to sound like, man, it, it doesn't really matter, or you're just a small fish. No, what you guys are doing right here is integral to God's mission. And so I just want to encourage you guys and say that, man, you are right smack dab in the middle of what God desires to do in terms of saving the world. You're all here, you're in the middle of it, and I feel like, man, there's nothing better to invest your life in than the local church and seeing what God can do through you in the local church to reach your city. So I hope that's an encouragement to y'all. It's certainly an encouragement to us every time we get to see what is happening in New City and every time we get to hear. And certainly uh, it's an encouragement just to be here with you guys this morning. It's a lot better than being up in North Carolina where it's freezing rain right now too. So that helps as well, all right? Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 66. Psalm 66 is where we're gonna be. I know you guys have been in a series here in the book of Psalms. And I know you started out kind of looking at these Psalms that were a bit of a reflection, a bit of looking backwards um, as to maybe 2020 and, and not just reflecting, but maybe lamenting a little bit in that. And then last week in Psalm 65, you guys kind of took a turn a little bit and started turning, looking forward to this God who restores. And so what I want to do is kind of piggyback off of uh, what Eric was talking about last week in Psalm 65, this idea that we do serve a God that meets us where we're at. We can lament, we can reflect. He meets us there, but we serve a God ultimately who is going to restore us. And what we're going to see in Psalm 66 is that the God who restores us is a God who is worthy of our worship. And so we're going to talk about this idea of worship. And here's two things I think are really important for you to understand as it relates to this idea of worship, okay? Especially if you are a follower of Jesus in here. I haven't met anyone who doesn't want zeal, passion, excitement, fervency in their worship. Like, I don't really come across someone who says, like, yeah, like, man, honestly, I'm okay being apathetic in my worship. Like, I'm, I'm like, okay being, like, a mediocre worshiper. Like, and I'm, I'm fine. Just, like, leave me alone, right? 
No, we all want to grow in our worship. We want white-hot worship. We want fervency in our worship. And that's what Psalm 66 is going to show us. What does that look like to be someone who has zeal? What would it look like in 2021 to say, God, grow me in my worship. Make me a more fervent worshiper. But the other thing I think is really important at the outset, and maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I don't know if I'm a believer or not. Here's what we have to wrestle with, and here's what we have to come to understand. When it comes to worship, all of us are worshipers. So we, we, maybe we want to grow and we, we desire to grow in our fervency in worship. But the other thing that we have to understand, too, is that all of us are worshipers. That's how we were created. I thought maybe it would be easy just to kind of start off the sermon this morning on a light note, talking about my dog, um, my dog Jax. Uh, he, uh, he died a year ago. Um, so there's that. It was sad. Yes. Um, but my dog Jax, was, there was one thing that I never had to teach him how to do. Right? He was a Labrador retriever. I never had to teach him how to fetch a stick. Like, I never had to say, like, hey, Jax, you sit here, okay, watch me. I'm going to throw this stick, and I'm going to go run and catch it in my mouth and bring it back. Like, I never had to show him that. Like, from the time he was a little puppy, when I threw a stick, he just went and got it. That was never something I had to teach him. Why? Because that's what a retriever was born to do. A retriever was born to fetch things. And as human beings, created in the image of God, we were born to worship. All of us are worshiping something or someone. And so if you're like, man, I'm not really sure, that, that sounds intriguing. I hope that Psalm 66 will cause us to lean in, all right? Here's the big idea, what we're going to look at this morning. We were made to worship God, and God is worthy of our worship. Those two things are very important to hold together. We were made. That's how we were created. We were made to worship God. You can't escape it. It's in who you are. We were made to worship God, and he is worthy of our worship. So maybe for some of us, it would be helpful if I just gave a very basic definition of worship. Because maybe some of us are like, what are you talking about? You're talking about like singing songs like we just did? You know, is it like at church? Is that what you're talking about with worship? Here is a basic definition of worship. Worship is assigning ultimate worth to something or someone. That's what worship is. If you break it all the way down, and we could do a whole theology class on worship, but at its core, worship is assigning ultimate. That means like the most important. It's assigning ultimate worth to something or someone in every single day of our life. We're doing that. We are assigning ultimate worth to something or someone. And what Psalm 66 is going to show us is that the only true object of that worship is God himself. And so let's go ahead and look at Psalm 66. I'm going to read the whole Psalm. I'll tell us where we're going, then we'll jump in and keep and go from there. All right. So Psalm 66 verse one, it says, shout for joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, give to him glorious praise, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome. In his deeds towards the children of man, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. They, uh, there did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living, and he has not let our feet slip. 
For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. And I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble, I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with smoke of the sacrifice of rams, and I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at the object of our worship. So Psalm 66 is going to show us the object of our worship. And then we're going to talk about the act of worship. So we'll first look at the object. Who is it that we are to be worshiping? And then how is it that we're supposed to be worshiping this object? How is it that we worship God? And then we'll apply it to a few different groups of people here this morning. All right, so first, let's look at the object of worship. The object of worship. Here's what we need to understand. We first, we have to first get the object of our worship right in our hearts if we're going to then expect the action of worship to be right in our lives. I'll say that again. We have to first get the object of our worship right in our hearts, who it is that we're worshiping here in the depth of our soul, if we expect the action, what goes on out here in life, if we expect the action of worship to be right with in our lives. And so the first part of Psalm 66 says that God is worthy of worship. God is the object of our worship, the only object of that is worthy of our worship. And why is that the case? Well, let's look at a few of the things that we see out of Psalm 66. The first thing it says here is that because God is, he's wholly different. He's wholly other. He's wholly bigger than anything else. It says that God is glorious, meaning God is weighty. The weight of God should displace everything else in our life. That's what the word glory means, weighty. The weight of God pushes everything else. That's who he is. But it also says that God is awe-inspiring. Or in the translation we just read, it means he is awesome. Awesome means extremely impressive which, man, it is extremely impressive that you can burp the alphabet, but I'm not really sure that that's the exact way we should be using the word awesome, and I'm guilty of that, using the word awesome all the time. But this is where we see the truest way that we should use the word awesome is used right here in Psalm 66. God is awesome. He is extremely impressive. And then it goes on to say that God is powerful. He is strong. His enemies cower before him. I love what Psalm 8 says. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Basically it's saying, man, when you look out like we did last night here and you see the moon which is hanging huge in the sky and you realize, man, God, that's like child's play to him. God did all that. He put it all together with his fingers. It's child's play to him. He is big. And then the Psalm 80 says, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars for which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yes, Man, God is universal. He's massive. We can't comprehend him, but he's also deeply personal. God is big. He is awesome, but he's also deeply personal. How do we know that? Psalm 66, it says that God is not only worthy of our worship because of how above us he is, but also because of how close he has come to us. 
What does the psalmist say in verse 5? It talks about these wonders that God has done, these acts for humanity. He says, come and see. It's actually the corporate gathering of Israel. They're saying, come and see these acts that God has done for humanity. Well, what are those acts? In verse 6, the psalmist recounts the saving act of God when he brought Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land. For those of you maybe who are not familiar, you have this scene back in Exodus where God's chosen people, they're enslaved in Egypt. And God comes to this guy named Moses and he says, look, I'm going to free my people. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want you to, and I'm going to use you and we're going to let them go and we're going to get them out of this. And so you got 10 plagues and all this kind of stuff. And then the Israelites, they leave Egypt and they're headed on out to freedom. And all of a sudden they get stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock is this giant ocean in front of them. The hard place is Pharaoh who says, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm coming after you. I want you back in Egypt as slaves. And so the Israelites, they don't know what to do. They're like, man, we're stuck. This is terrible. We should have just stayed there in slavery. There's literally nothing that they can do. And then Exodus 14, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind. And all night, and turned the sea into dry land. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters, like a wall to them on their right and on their left. You you see these the psalm here and the Israelites coming together in worship and they're singing, they're recounting, God, you're the one that took an ocean and you parted it. And we walked through on dry ground. You saved us when we could not save ourselves. Man, what an incredible act of salvation. But not only does God save, they go on to sing here in Psalm 66 and say that, yes, God saves, but he also sustains Verse 9, it says, he keeps us alive. He does not allow our feet to slip. And all throughout the Bible, we see that God's not only in the business of saving. He's in the business of sustaining us, of keeping us alive. Isaiah 40, 31 says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And then Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all of your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares enough about you to keep you alive, to sustain you, to meet your needs. See, God is the one who can keep us alive because he's the one that made us alive. That's who God is. The community of Israel rejoices in Psalm 66. They worship God because of his great acts, the God who saves and the God who sustains. But here's the thing. How much more should we worship God for his acts towards humanity, having seen God's act of salvation, God's act of sustaining us at work in the gospel. See, the Israelites look back to see God saving them when he parted the Red Sea. We have the ability to look back and see God's saving us through the cross. How much more New City Church does the gospel cause us, propel us to worship? I mean, is the gospel not God's greatest act towards humanity? I mean, think about it. Like the Israelites, we were enslaved. We stared down an ocean in front of us and an enemy behind us, and there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves. That's who we were. That's what Ephesians 2 says about us. We were God's enemy. We were helpless. We were children of wrath. Nothing that we can do about it. Enslaved to our sin. Enemy. Our enemy was death. It was bearing down on us, and yet God, he stepped in. We needed God to sovereignly intervene. And he did, not because we deserved it, but because he loved us. 
God sent his son Jesus. He parted the waters in front of us. When we stood and there was this chasm between us and God that there was no way that we could cross, God made a way. He sent his only son Jesus to live the life that we were supposed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die. And he didn't stay dead. We sang that this morning. He rose from the dead. And in doing so, that ocean that was in front of us parted and we were able to walk to freedom in relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's God's greatest act of humanity. The gospel is the biggest picture of who God is in his awesomeness, in who he is, in his bigness, in his universality, in his personal nature. Yes, God is big. He created the universe. He holds it all together. He knows all. He is everywhere. He is perfect. He is glorious. And yet he saved you. And he sustains you. That's what the gospel tells us. And then we have to remember, it's important at this point, we've got to remember that we were created to worship. When we see the gospel, we have to remember that we, every single one of us, were created to worship. And there is no other object, no other entity, no other person that fits as the true object of our worship. And so when we look at God as the object of our worship, what we have to realize, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, is that God is the only piece that fits the worship puzzle of our life. I don't know if you guys like doing puzzles. I think they're dumb. Um, thank you. So I'm like, man, what, what is the point of taking a perfectly good picture and cutting it up into 100 pieces that all look the same, you know? And so, uh, in fact, we have this one puzzle in our house. Now, now this is just a total soapbox here. Uh, we have this one uh, puzzle in our house. It's a floor puzzle of the United States, okay? And the reason I really hate puzzles is because of this puzzle, because apparently I'm supposed to know where Montana is, all right? And, and so there's this missing piece, and my, one of my little kids says, hey, well, just, Dad, it's just Montana. Where's Montana go? And I'm like, I don't know where Montana is. No one knows where Montana is, right? We've all been there. We're doing a puzzle, Right, And you got all these pieces that are scattered all across the table. And you have this one spot, and you're looking for the exact piece that fits right in that spot. And there's all these pieces on the table that you think look similar to that, that one missing spot. And so you take hours trying to find that one piece. And so you take this piece, and you're like, and this looks close to it. And you put it in there, and you try to like twist it, and you realize it doesn't fit. And and we just do this over and over and over again. We try to find that piece that fits in that missing spot. See, I think for a lot of us, that's what our life looks like. See, our heart is kind of that missing spot, and we are going around trying to find the missing puzzle piece. And so we take the puzzle piece of career, and we think, man, this must be it. Like, this has got to be the missing piece. And we, it looks close. It looks like it should fit in our heart, but yet we try to move it around, and we try to fit it in there, and we try to force it. We say, oh, maybe it's the puzzle piece of family. You know, like, man, family is the thing that is most important, so we take that. Or maybe it's, you know, just personal independence. We say, man, I don't worship anything. Like, I don't need religion. I don't need any of that. And so we take our own personal autonomy. We say, that's got to be the missing piece. That's got to be what fits. And every single time we take something like that and we try to fit it in that missing spot, what we are doing is we are worshiping. We are giving that thing ultimate worth. We are ascribing to that thing, whether it be our family, our career, our personal autonomy, we are ascribing ultimate worth to that thing. We are saying, this is the thing that's missing. Like, this is what has to go in this spot. 
And when we ascribe ultimate worth to something, what we're saying is, man, this, this thing has the ability to save me. But not only save me, this is the thing that, that will sustain me. And what we realize is that there's only one person who matches that definition. There's only one person who saves us and sustains us. And that's what Psalm 66 is showing us, that it is God. He's the one who fits that description. And the only one that fits that description. So God is the object of our worship. Once we understand the object, the who, then we kind of start moving into the how. Well, what about worship itself? What does that look like? So let's move into the act of worship. So we've looked at the object of worship. Let's look at the act of worship. The first thing we see is that worship is done both corporately and individually. That's what you see in Psalm 66. So there's actually a few different audiences in Psalm 66. You have the corporate group, the corporate body of Israel. You see the verbs, or you see those, uh, the words in there, us and our, referring to this group. They're worshiping together, but then it moves down into the individual, I. So worship is done both corporately and individually. So let me ask you this. If you're a follower of Jesus, have you made corporate worship a priority? Now let me say this. I'm not talking about on your calendar. I'm talking about in your soul. See, it's one thing to make corporate worship a priority on your calendar and say, yeah, I do. I'm here every week. It's another thing to come in and say, you know what? I'm not going to be apathetic in the way that I involve myself in the local body. I'm going to come with fervency. I'm going to come with expectation. We have to ask ourselves, man, have you made corporate worship a priority? Again, not just on your calendar, but in your soul. So God is our God. We worship him together. That's what we're doing here this morning. But he's also your God. He's our God collectively, but he is your God, the one who has restored you to himself. He has not withheld his steadfast love from you. And when we gather to worship God, he hears, yes, our collective voice. Men is a beautiful thing to sing and to worship God in that way and knowing that God hears us when we pray, but God also in the quiet of your home attends to your voice. God hears our voice collectively, but in the quiet of your home, he attends to your voice. He is worthy of the entire universe's praise, and yet in verse 19 it says that he hears the sound of your prayer. God is big, and yet he hears your prayer. Does worship then, like you have to ask yourself this, does worship extend beyond the walls of this church? Is all of your life worship before God? See, if worship is something that we do together, but it's not just that, worship is what you do individually in the rest of your life, does your worship extend beyond the walls of New City Church? Is all of life worship? We do it corporately, we do it individually. But we also see in Psalm 66 that worship is a natural response. It is a natural response to the recognition of who God is and what he has done. It's like a reflex. That's what worship is. When we ascribe ultimate worth, it's a reflex, particularly here in Psalm 66, it's saying recognizing who God is and what he has done. And we see this in two different ways. We see this reflex played out in singing and in shouting. It says that right off the bat. It says, sing to the Lord, shout. So singing is a vital, pivotal, it is a biblical part of worshiping God. That's job security, Jordan, okay? So that's what singing, it is. That's what we do in worship. But it also says shouting. Now, I don't necessarily think that shouting is something we do uh, often in, in church, but that is not because, and I've had to, I've, this is something that I feel like I've become convicted about, that is not because that we don't shout in other places in our life. So thinking about it this week, down here, driving around, 
seeing all the Super Bowls set up, what I realized is that, no, we might not shout in church in terms of excitement and enthusiasm, but we definitely shout in other arenas of our life. So you think about the Super Bowl being here in Tampa. Man, we shout at the TV screen and for sports pretty well. We're pretty good at shouting in that way. We get pretty enthusiastic. Our affections for our sports teams should not cause us to react more on Sunday afternoon than they do in church on Sunday morning. So, and I, I say that, and I say that as one who has wrestled as a Philadelphia sports fan who has done a lot of shouting at the TV and realizing, you know what, it's not that I don't shout. It's that maybe my affections for this one thing have caused me to shout in this way, but yet God is... My affections for God have not caused me to get that excited in another. So singing and shouting, it signifies enthusiasm in our worship. We have to ask ourselves, man, has our worship, has the object of our worship gotten so deep down into our soul that the natural response is, man, we can't help but sing and shout God's goodness. So worship is a natural response, but worship also involves remembering and reflecting on the one on who God is and what he has done. So we sing and we shout, but we also remember and we reflect. So we look at who, what, who God is and what he has done, but we also remember and we reflect. Sometimes remembering what God has done in the past is the greatest way to fuel our worship in the present. That's what we do. I think a lot of times when we come together in corporate worship, we reflect on God's past events. Do you think about God's past events in Scripture and your life? They inspire present worship. What God's past events in your life and in in Scripture, what they do is they create a fixed point. They create this fixed point where you say, man, all everything else might be going crazy, but I can look at this one thing or I can look at these things that God has done in my life and they create a fixed point that then erupts in worship in my life. I think about my uh, soon-to-be four-year-old. She's learning how to ride a bike. And so we're out in the cul-de-sac and what I've realized is that I have to stand, like, I have to stand, like, in the middle of the cul-de-sac because as she's riding around on her training wheels, like, I am that fixed point, right? She's, like, bebopping along, and at any point, she's just like, oh, he's still there. Okay, good, you know? And what that does is that fixed point, it creates that fuel in her to keep going, even when the bike starts to get wobbly, is that I become that fixed point for her to say, everything's okay. I'm going to keep going and doing this, you know? And that's what the past events. That's what remembering and reflecting does for us. We look and we see what God has done and it creates a fixed point. We come together in corporate worship. We sing about God's great deeds and it creates a fixed point. We fix our eyes on Jesus. We remember God's faithfulness then in order to fuel our worship now. So we sing, we shout, we remember, we reflect. These are all parts of worship But then we also see here that worship happens on both the mountain and in the valley. It happens on the mountain, but it also happens in the valley. Verses 11 and 12, they're an allusion to some of these trials that God brought the Israelites through. It's not all roses in Psalm 66. You see this allusion to, man, some things didn't go well, fire and water. And if you think back to the Israelites wandering through the desert, you realize that, man, it wasn't always a good thing. There was a lot of hardship that they experienced, a lot of hardship that they brought on themselves. The psalm is reminding us that we worship God not just in good times, but God is worthy of our worship even in the wilderness. God is still worthy of worship even when things are hard. 
And we can worship God even in the midst of difficulty because God has authority over that difficulty. The psalmists are acknowledging that worship is our declaration that even in the midst of trial, we can trust God. And so the psalmist is showing us that if we let it, the fire and the water, it will purify us. It will purify our motives. It will make us better worshipers. And so maybe what happened in 2020 is that God purified some stuff in our life. And the result in 2021 is that we are better worshipers. There's more zeal. There's more enthusiasm. There is a depth to our worship that we did not have before. And man, praise God for that. But if you're not there yet, please cling to verse 12, because in verse 12, it says, yet you have brought us to a place of abundance. Some of you need to cling to the end of verse 12, because some of you might be sitting still in that trial and you might need to say, God, I might not feel like worshiping today, yet I believe you will bring me out to a place of abundance. So when you don't feel it, you just tag along with the Israelites who are singing, God, we saw what you did, and it was hard, and we brought, you brought us to a place of abundance. And some of you might not feel that, but you need to sing this as a declaration of that's who God is, and let that fuel your worship. The last thing we see in worship as far as it, the act of worship is this, that worship is done in both word and deed. Worship is done in both word and deed. So yes, it's, it's about singing and shouting, but it's so much more than that. It's not just singing and, sh- and shouting, it is sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. That's what we see in verse 15. So if you read into it a little bit, you realize that the nature of these sacrifices that the worshiper is talking about, they're very extravagant. It's almost like a little overboard, like, what? Like, really? Like, they were the very best. He's saying, I'm bringing my best to you, God. Like, in my worship to you, like, I'm going to give it all to you. You deserve all of it. I'm not going to give you the leftovers. I'm going to give you the best. True worship is giving God the best first. I love what David Platt said. He said, worshiping God isn't just offering words to God with our mouth, but a blank check with our lives. God is all yours. It's all yours. And that's what we confess corporately. A lot of times, right, we come together and we confess corporately, yes, God, I surrender all But do we make that same confession individually? We sit here and we say, God, I surrender all. But when we leave, are we making that same statement with our life? God, it's all yours. I surrender all. Does God get our first and our best or does he get our last and our leftover? Are there areas of your life where we've said, man, God, you can have it all except that one thing? And what might that be? Here's our application. Worship God all the time and with all that we have. God is the object of our worship. We see the act of our worship played out in different ways. What does that mean for us? Well, we want to worship God all the time and with all that we have. So let me apply it to a few different people in the room. First, if you're an unbeliever, man, first I would just say, man, I, I, I'm, I love that you're here. I know Pastor Eric loves that you're here. You know, if you say, hey, I'm still checking this Jesus thing out. I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm glad that you're here. Here's what I would say to you. In Psalm 66, it says that all the earth will worship God. Okay? And what that's saying is that, that, that's not like a hypothetical, like, hey, fingers crossed, like one day all the, worship, all the earth will worship God. No, that's not a hypothetical statement. That's an inevitability. The psalmist is declaring something that will come to fruition. 
One day, all of the earth will worship God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So what does that mean for you? And I say this in the most humble way possible. It means that you will either worship God on this side of eternity or you will worship him on the other. And my hope and my prayer for you is that you would see that all the other things that you would try to put into that missing piece, man, they are not worthy of your worship. And that you would bow your knee and say, God, I realize and I recognize that you are the one, the only true one that is the worthy object of my worship. That you would confess that now knowing that, man, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But maybe you are a believer. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus. Are there things that have crept back into your life that you are starting to worship maybe that are not God? Man, our heart is sneaky that way. Are there things that have crept back into your life? Man, maybe your kids. Maybe it is your job. Maybe it is comfort, security. Are there things that have crept back in? Does your worship, again, like we said, does it extend beyond the walls of this worship gathering? Or is your worship, is it kind of limited to a specific place at a specific time with a specific group of people called church? Or does it go beyond that? May we constantly recenter the object of our worship. May it be God and may we check the actions of our worship. First, best, all of life. We ask ourselves that as individual worshipers. Is God getting my first, my best, and is he getting all of my life? But let me say this, and let me, let me do this as, as, a, as a means of concluding here. Let me talk to you guys as a church, New City Church. Because one of the things I love about Psalm 66 is, is that, yes, it's talking to the individual worshiper, but it's also showing corporate worship, the, the, the gathering of Israel together, worshiping God. And so I think it, it kind of affords us an opportunity to, to kind of introspectively look at kind of the corporate gathering and the worship that happens corporately when we come together. And there's two invitations that the psalmist makes. If you look back in verse 5, the community of Israel, it says, come and see. Come and see. We talked about that. It says, come and see the acts of God. But then they, he says in verse 16, come and hear. So what I want to say to you guys, New City, is that God has uniquely placed you here in Tampa, Florida to do just that to look out at the thousands and thousands of people that are here and to say, yo, you gotta come check this out. Not the great spectacle of church, but the God that we worship. That's what God has uniquely placed you here as a church to do. To say to your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends on your street, come and see. Come and hear. So I thought about this whole idea, you know, how we can naturally, in different ways, we do this, right? There's a lot of things in our life that we say, hey, come and see. So a year ago, my dad came down to North Carolina, and I guilted him. He had promised me my whole life that we would build a treehouse, and he never did, um, which is the only thing my dad never fulfilled his promise on. So, uh, so I said, hey, remember when you told me you were going to build me a treehouse, and you didn't? He was like, yeah. I was like, well, my kids need a treehouse, all right? So, so, um, so he came down last February. It was almost a year ago. And, uh, and we, built, we built this treehouse. It was a blast. We, we took a whole weekend, and we built this treehouse. And I was so proud of it. I mean, I was like so proud of this treehouse. It, it's, it's, 
not nothing crazy, but, and so like, man, it didn't matter like who you were. Like I, I was going to tell you like, man, you got to come see this treehouse, right? So for a lot of people, it was, it was no big deal. You know, I'd have you know, someone come over to the house and they'd drop them off some food. I'm like, hey, hey while you're here, like come. It starts to get a little weird when the Amazon Prime guy comes. You're like, hey, real quick, come, come here, man. Like come. you're inviting a, a grown man to come at, look at your treehouse. Um, that's when it gets a little weird. But I was proud of it. Like, man, I, I was like, come and see. I was telling everyone to come and see. Man, that's what I hope that you as a church, I want to see that fervency for y'all here in Tampa. Man, come and see. Come and see the God who is worthy of our worship. But then here's the question. What are you showing them when they do come and see? Man, I want you to say, come and see. But as a church, what are you showing them? What is it that Tampa is going to see in your worship? Is it, is, is it an excitement to gather? Man, we are enthusiastically gathering together. Is it brokenness over sin? Is it unity amidst diversity? Are they seeing a fervency in prayer? Are they seeing a generous people saying, man, they're generous with all that they have? People that are willing to endure hard things? I love what John Piper said. You've probably heard him. Missions exist because worship doesn't. New City Church, is your worship leading others to want to worship as well? When we say come and see, what is it that we are showing them? Is your worship as a church overflowing into your witness to this city? Tampa, you got to come and see. David Platt says, passionate worship always leads to personal witness. Passionate worship always leads to personal witness. So here's my prayer. My prayer is that New City Church would fix its eyes on the right object. Not just on Sunday, but all the time. God alone is worthy of our worship. That that would mark you guys as a church. And what that would do is it would flow into the action of your worship. Passionate, all of life, all of time worship. Let me pray for you guys. Father, we thank you that you are worthy of our worship. God, we admit, we come humbly before you and we say, God, that's how you've created us. And Father, you're worthy. Thank you, God, that you saved us. But God, thank you that you keep our feet from slipping every single day. God, you hold us up. God, I want to pray for New City Church. I want to pray, Father, that, that you would be the object of their worship. God, their worship would spill out to, as a witness to this city. God, yes, they would say, come and see. But when people do come, Father, that their worship, it would show them the greatness of who you are, but also how personal you are, how big you are, and yet, God, you care so much about me. Father, use this church. Father, I thank you 
Father, that you are using us, broken people, to reach broken people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.